Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Spike, take two. Hello again, mate. Hello, how you doing? <laughs> For our friends at home, we've had, we had a bit of a technical problem, but uh, Spike, thank you ever so much for coming on the, the show. Um, I was saying earlier how uh, it, 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 to have you as my guest and to see some of the, um, some of the information you sent me uh, it's been quite a sort of emotional experience. It's made me question, you know, question a lot of things, a lot of things um, about where my my life is going, if I was honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'll say it again, I think that's I think that's a good thing, right? But uh, let let's talk about the Scots Guards, can we? Uh, I joined in uh, 1980. I was 20 years old when I joined. Uh, I was living in London at the time. I was uh, living in a student hostel in Bayswater. And um, I was working as a security guard. And my boss was a a former Scots guard. And um, the direction I was going at the time was a a pretty rapid downhill into uh, drug addiction. I'd, st- I'd, I'd been smoking pot for a long time, but I'd, I started to dabble in heroin and uh, I'd taken that a couple of times. And this guy could see the direction I was going and practically um, encouraged, if not pushed me slightly, to, to join the military. I tried when I was 16. I didn't get in because my, my, I was uh, playing truant from school quite a lot. I tried when I was 18, but by that time I'd had an assault charge against me and God forbid the... Uh, violent men in the army just wouldn't do with it <laughs> you know, so <laughs> so I, I finally got in when I was 20 years old and uh, I joined the Scots Guards on account of this guy that was my boss a guy called Gordon Burgess so yeah so um, the spring of um, 1980 I found myself at the Guards Depot you know I had some uh, Small military experience. I was a, 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 a cadet when I was in when I was a teenager, a young teenager. So I had a rough idea how it, was, how it would go and pan out. And I was also given a great deal of advice by this guy Gordon: keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut. Keeping this shut is quite difficult for me. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up 1980 at the guards depot, um, and uh, the training began. And where, where is that depot, Spike? For, for it's, it's in Pudbright, sorry. You're and where's that, where's that for us people that haven't been past Exeter? That, that's um, just, um, if you see London as a clock, um, Pudbright's about 8 o'clock, the little hands point at 8 o'clock. If you, you, you get the M25 as a, as a clock, Pudbright's right down in Surrey, uh, 8 o'clock. You know, you used that clock thing when you were in the military as well to yeah. to, to guide people two o'clock, you know, nine o'clock. So we're about eight o'clock from London. So are we saying the Scots Guards train in the in England? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not really. Uh, they're, they're just part of the household division. 
Coldstream Guards, Grenadier Guards, Scots, Irish and Welsh Guards, and then the Household Cavalry. They're all, it's all amalgamated now since my time, but it was purely for guards and uh, horse guards only. So it was a 22-week training programme. Same as the Marines and the Paras, basically, except we don't jump out of perfectly serviceable planes at the end of it. You know, so uh, yeah, that, that, so uh, the spring of, uh, I mean, we finished, probably joined at the end of spring, uh, beginning of the summer of 1980, and finished my training in 1981, January, February, March, March 81. And my first port of call was uh, Belfast. But uh, if you want to talk about uh, military training, I'm more than happy to well, go through I'm- that. I'm just wanted to just get a bit of your background for for for, for our listeners because obviously where we've come from is really important to where we're going, isn't it? Especially for, mm-hmm. guys, for guys like you and me, where quite clearly, you know, we've been on a journey. Um, and I'm 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 going to even peel back a bit more in a second. But the first question I wanted to ask is: so are the guards? Does that to me, that that's the guys with the big, the bearskin. The bearskin. <laughs> bear What's the name for that? There's a name for it. No, it's, not, it? no, it's called it was called the bearskin. Oh, I thought we, I thought it's as kids bus- we called it like a busby or something. Or no, a, no, they're much much smaller and a different shape. They're flat at the top, and they're, they're called bearskins. Okay. But they're not actually made from bear skin. They used to be, apparently, but they're, they're synthetic now. You only wear them when you're in the ceremonial duties in London, uh, Windsor Castle. Uh, I'm not sure if they do it up in Edinburgh Castle. but So you're only, you only wear the tunic and the bear skin or the great coat and the bear skin when you're uh, doing public duties, Buckingham Palace, St. James's, Windsor Castle, the Tower, places like that. So I never saw a bear skin or wore a bear skin for the first three years of being in the guards because uh, my first port of call was Belfast and then we went to Hong Kong for two years. So I, I never got, I never done any ceremonial duties for the first three years. So the, the, the old bearskin, <laughs> the most uncomfortable thing you can wear in your head. You know? And is it the guard, the guards then, Spike? Does, does, in my ignorance, does that just mean traditionally you protect the Queen? Basically, yeah, yeah, but obviously, and you hear a lot of comments about when people are passing the guards at the palace or St James. Oh, they're not real soldiers, obviously, you know, which is pretty far from the truth, you know. So, um, yeah, we're, we're active all over the world, and the, the Scottish guards got a pretty bad name for the, their conduct in Malaysia. Yeah, some atrocities were committed there by the Scottish guards. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Oh. Because the uh, the Marines as well, they do ceremonial ceremonial duties at the at the palace. It's, um, uh-huh. it's like it's done on like a rotation thing, isn't it? Around all, all, I think all the. Well, I don't think it's all the regiments, is it? I think it's. Well, we the, the Green Jackets uh, they, they do um, ceremonial duties at sometimes, and so do the Gurkhas. So yeah, you get lots. We called them chippies. Chippy regiments, which is a derogatory term for anything outside of the guards, but that we can go into this uh, interregimental rivalry because basically that, that's what your basic training is about to, to uh, galvanize you into this gang like mentality where, where you're, you're, you're encouraged to despise and hate other regiments the, the Navy, the Air Force, 
and even uh, within your own section to be competitive against other sections within your own platoon and your own company. That, that's how the guard. That's how the, the army works. Were uh, you were you taught to hate civilians? Pretty much so. Yeah, um, it, um, they were referred to as. Uh, can you use the c word? <laughs> uh, oh, civvy c word. Hate. Uh, yeah. I'm only hesitating, mate, because funny enough, if you use it in the first, I think it's 15 minutes of a YouTube video, they demonetize the video. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from swearing, but it was a civvy see you next Tuesday. You know, so, so that's how they were referred to. And I think that's the same with the Paris. I don't, don't know about the Marines, but basically the, the military in general, you are encouraged to look down at civilians like they're inferior. You, you have stepped up. You know, you become a soldier, you become a guardsman, a marine, a para. You, you, you know, the civilians are beneath you. Well, you've got that sort of level of contempt for your own civilians. What level of contempt are you going to have when you go abroad? The indigenous yeah. population of any co uh, com country that you're um, patrolling or invading. And you talked about signing up. Can we just go back? I, I always like to ask people about childhood. <laughs> main main reason is we're in a suicide epidemic now. Former servicemen are committing suicide at a huge rate, and of course, I mean, I, to me and you, it's an of course. But to people watching, the government are doing nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I just try to shed light on the whole PTSD thing. And one of the things that I've I seem to uncover more and more is that many of us joined up from damaged backgrounds. So that the, the damage was done before, before we joined. Almost certainly was. Uh, I was born in 1960. So that's only 15 years after the, the, the finish of the Second World War. And so th that was still very much in the minds of uh, the, the elder population. My father was in the Navy, obviously, slightly after the war. Um, so we, we were sort of, um, in, to be a soldier was to be something. And you had all that Hollywood injection of what a soldier should be and brave and courageous and fearless and all the rest of it. So we're brought up with this Hollywood um, version of what war is, which is a completely false um, uh, way to look at war. So, yeah, we, you brought up, and I had the Action Man doll, and I had the Johnny Seven machine gun. We'd play soldiers outside, and we'd watch all the war films. And John Wayne, you know, Jesus Christ. You think, <laughs> you think like John Wayne had swam the Atlantic with a bayonet in his teeth to uh, save the whole of Europe from the nasty Nazis, you know? But in reality, we all a great deal of debt to the Russians and the Indians. And uh, so, yeah, you, so you brought up with that mindset. And uh, also, um, at that time, violence towards children was acceptable. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, my father was a very, very aggressive, violent man. He was English. Uh, and the reason I'm going to mention the fact that he was English because he met my mother while he was in the Navy in Rossi. And um, they, they got married very quickly. You know, So he ended up an Englishman living in Glasgow in the 50s, which was not a good thing to be. You know, so so we were outsiders from from the from the off, and uh, my mother had my two sisters, and then had me, and within a five year period, 
So my father was prone to um, long silences. He was he was depressed, you know. He, he was he was suffering himself, though we didn't know that at the time. So there was an awful lot of tiptoeing around the house, you know, because you never knew what mood he was being, you know. You just sit there and smoulder and watch the telly, and if you made a noise, you'd shut up, shut the door, and occasionally we'd erupt into violence, which would involve me and my sisters getting punched or whipped with garden cane, or you know. I mean, so it was all, and even on the street outside, because my father was English, growing up, you favour English, you know, and so yeah, you know that would cause aggro as well because my father was English, and then. To add to the, the, the racism that my father experienced and we did, because it is racism, I don't care if people, they also, uh, we were introduced to sectarianism. Of course, being in Glasgow, Protestant Catholic, and uh, we were Church of Scotland, my dad was Church of England, so that makes us Protestant. So we had to go to a Protestant school, and uh, there's a Catholic school very near the, the flat where I lived. So there was a lot of name calling and stuff like that going on. When I was coming home from school, yeah, you're Protestant this and you're Protestant that. And I would retaliate with Catholic this and Catholic that. So it was a very tense uh, upbringing as a child, you know. So, yeah, I was probably quite damaged before I even joined the military. Yeah. So, yeah, mm. there was a, a lot of violence, a lot of, a lot of fights at school. You know, I'm going to um, go out on a limb here and say, I bet your dad told you you wouldn't make it in the military. Absolutely. Mm. Said it wouldn't last five minutes, five this, years. <laughs> this is quite a common thread, isn't it, amongst us yeah. people? That, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of military, as they were told, they were worthless and wouldn't amount to anything. And well, I'm going to join the army, and I'm going to show you. You know, well, absolutely. Not just from my father, but also from teachers at school. You know, I wasn't the brightest. I just couldn't concentrate at school. I just wanted to look out the window and couldn't wait for that belting so I could escape this prison, you know, <laughs> and this endless uh, teacher trying to muddle your brain up with instructions and this and that, and I thought, ah, I want to get out, I'm just a kid. I, you know, for the first uh, five years of a child's life, I'm encouraged to run about and speak, and then the, the next ten years of their life to sit down and shut up, you know, <laughs> that's the education system. So, yeah, it was all fraught with... Um, Verbal put downs and uh, physical violence and uh, a lot of fighting on the streets. So I've, I've, I couldn't even tell you how many fights I've had in my life. I, I couldn't even put a number on it. You know, mm. you can tell by the nose and the scars. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. We've ascertained that we've ascertained your your, your childhood was quite rough, uh-huh. um, and that that's a factor in why you. A driver in why you joined up? Basically, yeah, to prove my father wrong. But I, I, I was geared up for the military to join the military from a very early age. I, I didn't see any other way, and uh, I was seduced by the the adverts they had at the time, travel and being tough and all the rest of it, you know. But most of it was to prove my father wrong and to prove myself that I was tough enough to get through the training. Yeah, did you? Did you, were you in the Falklands if you were in that era? Oh, thank God for that. I, I joined, like I said, joined in 1980, and there's two battalions in the Scots Guards at the time, 1st Battalion, 2nd Battalion. The guy that I spoke about earlier, Gordon, 
who encouraged me to join the, the army and the Scots Guards had uh, told me in advance that after they finished a tour of Ireland, of Belfast, that there was a two-year tour of Hong Kong coming up. And I thought, I'll have some of that, you know. And uh, the guys that didn't fancy going to Ireland joined the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards. Of course, 1982, the Falklands War kicked off for Maggie Thatcher's early 80s election campaign, as I call it. Um, the 2nd the Battalion Scots Guards went to the Falklands. Uh, we were in Hong Kong at the time, thankfully. I missed that, that awful bloodbath. Mm. You know, what, what people, people fail to understand, and we spoke about this earlier, that the suicide rate, more guys have taken their own life since that uh, war and died during it. And that's just the, the talking about the British casualties, not talking about the Argentinian casualties. Mm. So it was hand-to-hand. It was an awful bloodbath, that was. You know. And it, it doesn't include the people that drank themselves to death, overdosed, yeah. on, overdosed on drugs, had wrecked marriages, abused, you know, beat their chick, went home and, you know, were, were, came out in domestic violence. Um, mm-hmm. Huge, huge cost. Yes. Just so, just so uh, one woman and one man could get re-elected. The, the guy in Argentina, he won an election on the back of that and Thatcher won an election on the back of that war because she was nowhere in the polls before that. It's just amazing how you can swing people's brains with a bit of uh, bullshit bravado and uh, patriotism. How, um, because I'm, you know, I think you probably aware of this. I, I used to say I'm a pacifist and I got told to stop saying that. I, I'm supposed to say I'm anti-war. Well, whatever it is that I'm supposed to be, that's what... <laughs> That's what I am, folks, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a pacifist. If somebody's messing with me, I'll be straight in their face. But I'm a, I'm a peace activist. I don't think one contradicts the other. I'm just, you know? Spike, I'm just rubbish at terminology. I just I just think war's all a, a great big um, game. I think it's all fixed. It's all rigged. I think well, you've, well, only, you've only got a little look, look, look a little bit at history to see who profits off these wars, right? The same body of people. But the only thing where I come to a sticking point and I I just hold my hands up, I don't know, is what what happens when you get something like the Falklands? I mean, we we don't know, for example, that Gautieri or or whoever didn't go to the same bloody private school that Thatcher did, right? I'm not saying that they did, folks. I'm I'm just I'm just I'm just chucking out how how we're never going to know, as the common man, man or woman in the street, the deeper goings on um, bit behind such events. But if it was to be taken at face value, and it was just some cocky Argentinian dictator trying to trying to get a second, a bit like Thatcher, you know, trying to get a second election a presidency. What, what, what could have been done there? Well, the, the Americans get involved. I don't know the ins and outs, and pretty much like yourself. The Americans get involved, and uh, there was they almost had a peaceful settlement. But Thatcher knew if that task force that she had sent out to the 
the sound of trumpets and waving flags, all the people at the quayside thinking that all these young guys were going off to play in the World Cup. You know, we are patriotism just going sky high. And um, so they, they were on the, the verge of a peaceful settlement. Thatcher knew if they had come home unbloodied, that task force, she was out, she was finished, she was, the game was up for her. So she made sure that war went right ahead with these three words in a telegram to the, the submarine that sank the Belgrano. And the three words were sink the Belgrano. And uh, I forget the name of the submarine. They sent a message back saying that the Belgrano was way outside the exclusion zone and heading back to Argentina. And that three-word order came back, sink the Belgrano, to make sure that war went right ahead because she knew if that task force came back unbloodied, she was finished. She used that war for political gain. She sacrificed all those young men to a brutal, horrible death so she could remain in office. Psychopath. Absolute psychopath. So that's... I get quite angry. And I could feel myself getting <laughs> quite... Well, it's... We're supposed to be the cleverest animal on the planet. Right. What? Why don't we? Why don't we demonstrate that in situations like this? What the only way around it was to mobilise this massive force of, you know, young men and 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 then put them at risk. And 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 of course, it's the same for the Argentinians. And it, I, the, I just think there has to be a better way. Or, or the lead up to any war. They want to silence the dissenters. They want to silence the people that realise what is actually happening here. Mm. And uh, they, they do, they've done it to me on Facebook. Who, who was the guy that, uh, that, uh, that broke the, the Enigma code? He, he, he was robbed out of history because he was gay. You know? I mean, it's, they've, they've, got, they've got a really good way of erasing history and writing their own history. You just need to look at female history. That's been practically erased, you know, and men being given the credit for women's achievements or black history or African history, Irish history. Uh, it's all it's all distorted and it's mostly lies. History is written by the victors. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, if you, it's like George Orwell says, isn't it? If you control the past, you control the future. Yeah, well, uh, Malcolm X said it as well. Malcolm X said that the, 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 the press will have you hating the peacemakers and, um, and worshipping the cycles. Well, that they were my words, but along these lines, they'll have you believe in the people that are lying to you and disbelieving the people that are telling the truth, like all the prophets throughout history. I mean, if you're a Christian, look what happened to Jesus. If you believe that's, you know, crucified for telling the truth. And it's still happening now. Look what happened to Jeremy Corbyn. The last few years, that, that unbelievable smear campaign that went on for years, and uh, of course it worked because we ended up with a donut like Bojo in charge. <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> How does that happen? Do you think though, if Corbyn had got in, because I, 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 Spike, I've never voted. I, I refuse to vote in a system that is. The, the sole purpose of that system is to keep me a slave and to keep these so, and to keep these sociopaths rich and my yeah. family were my history is slavery 
we my family's history believe it or not we got our freedom we were the lower class of vikings and i say we got our freedom because here i am today and i'm, I'm not a viking slave anymore right so it's i'm being a bit silly but here's the thing i'll, I'll i'm not going to vol volunteer to be a slave no way and every time you go to that that voting box in my opinion you just you're perpetuating a system that not only not I only keeps you a slave but these people hate you they hate you they I don't love you they they would love they would like nothing more if you and your whole family were just wiped out and what do we do we go and vote for them again you know it, it's insane the illusion of choice but I did vote in the last election, but I wasn't voting Labour, I was voting for Corbyn. But looking uh, in hindsight now, I think it's a good job the poor guy didn't get in, because that smear campaign would have continued and continued. And uh, with this present thing that's happening with the crony thing, he would have been slaughtered. He would have been slaughtered. But you know what would happen if he got in? Out would come the blackmail. Out would come... The dissent, you know, even more dissenters than there were, up, up, up the pressure, up the pressure. And the next thing, Corbyn signing up nuclear missiles and, and selling jets to Saudi. I mean, you, I did, nothing would have changed. You know, the same no. as Nelson Mandela, one of the classed as one of the biggest heroes of, um, of our time, when he became president of South Africa, I think the, one of the first things he did was sign a massive arms deal to have jets made for the South African Air Force. Or don't don't I apologize. Yeah. I'm, I'm just giving like a, a rough example. It's He's like they're all they're all part of the same big gang. Well, they're puppets, mate, aren't they? They're puppets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're not just puppets, but they're cowards. And coward yeah, and puppet are two words you don't really want in the same sentence and you certainly don't want in parliament well anybody that is uh, capable of rocking the boat usually gets taken out one way or another gfk being a perfect example yeah spike tell me about hong kong how was it there because i i've lived i've been to hong kong four times now and i lived over there for uh for uh a year Quite, that got quite interesting. <laughs> well, obviously, initially flying out there, uh, very excited. You know, the, the, this was exotic. Hong Kong, you know, for a 21-year-old, the rest of the battalion were all early 20s, um, but some teenagers as well. So it was um, dead exciting. And uh, we, we moved down to Stanley Fort, and, but very, very quickly, uh, became a lot of were quite homesick to be honest, but the, the accommodation was in dog order. We had rats and cockroaches, and uh, it took, took about six months to clean the place up. And being the bloody guards, when we walked out, we had to have a suit and a shirt and a tie. And uh, you know, it's a hundred degrees out there, you know what I mean? <laughs> we haven't got our shoes here, you know, and uh, we had to. Well, what difference does it make if you're falling about drunk with a suit on or a pair of shorts and a t-shirt? doesn't matter. You still look like a drunk. And, uh, so most of us really, we were, a lot of us were still wired from our experience in Belfast. Yeah, back to the because the pubs opened all night, didn't they? That, that was all new to us, of course. Um, even at one point, our uh, company sergeant major 
got the, the, the left flank together and said, look, you're young lads, I understand, but you're drinking yourself silly. You need to chill out a wee bit. We did learn to chill out. We go out later on at night instead of starting drinking in the afternoon when we the weekend or something. We would leave it and go out later and drink through till about three, four in the morning, go back bluttered. <laughs> so I think the fact that we're so physically fit helped us cope with the level of alcohol that we were consuming. But that didn't slow down when I left the military. <laughs> I carried on drinking at a stupid rate of knots. Mm. Hong Kong, obviously a crown territory back then. So what was your role over there? We were um, well, basically just to fly the flag and uh, we'd work at the new territories and try to catch illegal immigrants that were coming over. So we, we'd, we'd be on the, the borders of the new territories, the Shum Shum River, uh, that separated um, the Kowloon side from mainland China. And uh, so we were, there was various camps. I was also part of a, a landing craft patrol. We, we'd actually, we learned how to drive uh, landing crafts and fly about the, the sea searching ships, you know. But if we went too far towards the Chinese side, they'd come racing at us, tooled up with machine guns, and we'd have to hightail it back to uh, British territory. We, we didn't have guns on us. <laughs> Do you remember any of the bars you drank in in Wan Chai? Yeah, yeah, the Crossroads, Pussycat, um, the, the Underground, the, the Subway, China Fleet Club, the old one. God, man, we used to get into some scraps with the Yanks and uh, Australians would be there as well. And uh, a few scraps with local triad gangs and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was a pretty um, aggressive environment. You know, you'd have uh, British MPs and American MPs and the, the Hong Kong police patrolling all these areas where all these young, drunk squaddies were just causing havoc. Yeah, I'm just going to plug my book, Spike, Don't Think Me Rude, but for anyone who wants to read about the Hong Kong underground, I was a doorman in Wan Chai, you see. Uh-huh. So I worked for the, 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 the club I worked in was run by the 14K triads. So I got to see all of what you're just describing as a doorman there, all the fights kicking off. The Chinese used to come into our club with all their knuckles, just all the skin off their knuckles, hands dripping with blood and they'd say we just killed a sailor <laughs> right. meaning, you know, meaning, meaning they just had a big punch up with one of the yank ships that had come in well 3,000 would come ashore at one time and uh, we used to talk to the yanks as well when we weren't scrapping with them and they, they, even within these great big battleships or uh, land aircraft carriers they had their no-go areas Black areas, Hispanic areas, uh, redneck areas, you know, all different. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite... Well, we were just young. We used to fight with anybody. If you started on us, we'd start with them. Apparently, they were warned before they came ashore not to gamble, drink or fight with the Scots cards. <laughs> says a lot about us. But, yeah, um, it's, it's, sometimes we, we made friends with these guys, you know, but... They were just a, a, fleeting, a fleeting visit. The fleet would come in and then a few days later they'd be gone again. And they'd all be loaded, you know. Because lo these ships are dry, so they would go mental as soon as they hit shore. Mm. Uh, so it was quite a, a, a crazy sort of environment. One, 
one club I worked in, they had this bizarre set of rules. Well, I say bizarre. They had about 20 rules written on a poster by the door. One of them, to give you an idea, was no, no fur, which, to be honest, is not looking at that now kind of makes sense. But back then in, in the 90s, it was a bit of a, hang on, can you tell people what they're allowed to wear? You know, another one was no hats and all this sort of thing. Right? But one of them was no servicemen. And of course, <laughs> when the Yank ships came in, you'd be there on the door. And I mean, I'm five for eight, right? Got these big black Yanks, six foot three, six five, yeah. some of them six, seven absolutely huge right yeah i remember them <laughs> and you had to diplomatically say sorry guys uh, no servicemen and they go how do you know we're servicemen motherfucker <laughs> and i just say well put it this way i've lived in hong kong a year and uh, i've never seen a black man let alone three with georgetown sweatshirts on all walking side by side down the street right <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, you had to have your, your good dormant skills at, at those moments, I tell you. What well, the Chinese uh, used to do to, to intimidate, um, to get small glasses and smash them on the floor, you know, just to, uh, to, to intimidate whoever they were going to fight. Did you ever experience that? A lot of glass smashing, you know, like gesturing and. Uh, no, there was some weird stuff would go on. For example, the Chinese would get drunk really easily, and and they'd all not not all. Sorry, that's that's an exaggeration. But the one many of them I saw would go a bit mental. It was almost as if, uh, well, I mean, we all went mental, right? But it it was just it was just weird. You you could be with a very calm, rational person one minute. Then within whatever the phone's doing, mate, just it's fine for the. Just leave it. Okay. Yeah, just leave. Just, just leave it. I can, the top and I'm just flicking it away, but I'll, I, can, I'll, I, can, I can still see it. But yeah, okay. they they would they would get really wired. It would all go a bit like it wasn't nice. Uh -huh. um, but enough about the, uh, the the tropics. What what was it like over the water? In Belfast. Well, obviously, coming from Glasgow, I had an awareness of sectarianism. I was brought up with a Rangers Celtic, Protestant school, Catholic school. So, um, yeah, I, so I was aware of what was happening. But I went there under the illusion that it was just a handful of nutcases that were at the IRA that were causing all the trouble. And I didn't totally under, I didn't know anything about Irish history or the British involvement in Ireland. I had none of that under my belt. So when I arrived there, what I was confronted with was uh, whole communities hating you, you know, entire communities, uh, New Lodge, Ardoin, the Markets, Falls, Divis, all these areas were, were hardcore Republican areas. And these people hated you with a passion. And my defence mechanism to that hatred was to hate them back just as much. You know, but I had no, no idea about um, what the Irish had been through for the last... 800 years if you want, you know, because that's how far the British-English involvement in Ireland goes back. So, um, now, yeah. Can you just enlighten us, Spike, as to just a very brief um, 
precy is that the right word of 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 anglo-irish history and how the orange thing came around and you um obviously like all wars it's individuals fighting for power and getting people on their side to you know fight for them still happens to this day um well england britain has invaded the entire world and uh, the irish have been uh, subjected as the scots were and as were many areas of england subjected by this imperialism you know just turning up, throwing people off their land, taxing them to death, you know, and taking taking all the profits from the land, impoverishing people, you know, um, displacing people, disenfranchising people, uh, killing, raping, murdering their way across lands, and, and just basically raping continents. When the Ireland did that for about 800 years, uh, then you had the Battle of the Boyne, King James wanted to... Basically, Britain sent lots of Scottish Protestants over to the north of Ireland. Before it was Northern Ireland, just Ireland then. I'm just giving you what, what I, I, I've got in the locker as regards Irish history. So to basically to work the land, because up north it was all the fertile land and all the rest of it. And they got all... So, um, and then King James wanted to implement Catholicism to the whole of Ireland. And so, so William of Orange... God, um, to, was going to take uh, James on, and uh, you got all these songs now in the Orange Walk and all the rest of it, and uh, to to basically keep the, the the Protestants in power. So obviously, there's a lot more depth to it. I, I just can't give you at the minute. So you had the Battle of the Boying and all the rest of it. Uh, then we had the Easter uprisings during the Second World, the First World War. And uh, 1922, Ireland was offered to vote for independence, which four to one, they voted overwhelmingly for independence. But the Protestants in the north were afraid that uh, if it became a republic, they would lose out. Well, the money men did anyway, and they managed to convince all the Protestants, if they get um, independent, you're going to lose all your jobs, you're going to live in penury and all the rest of it. Scaring people, that, that's a great tactic to get people on board, to scare the hell out of them. So basically that's a, the tactic to involve. So there's a lot of uh, um, Protestants in the north of Ireland were threatening to take um, military action and start blowing things up and all the rest of it. So somehow they, they, they got the nine counties of Ulster, they gerrymandered it to six the six counties of Ulster, because if they kept the nine counties of Ulster British, it would have been a Republican majority. And that didn't suit the Loyalists and the Protestants, the Unionists. So they managed to gerrymander that down into six counties, which became Northern Ireland and remained British. But the Republicans within the North of Ireland, I call it the North of Ireland now, um, you just weren't getting a, a sheer slice of the pie. They were the sidetracked with jobs. All the jobs were going to the Protestants. They got all the decent housing. They got all the decent land. And of course, the Republicans were just getting really, really pissed off about being second best all the time. They were getting free. So when the, the, the civil rights movement and kicked off in America, the, the Irish stood up and said, hey, you know, we are not getting treated right either. We have second-class citizens in this part of Ireland. So, so they started to um, protest 
and rebel, and of course the loyalists kicked off, and they kicked off, and the RUC at the time, 1969, couldn't deal with the level of violence, so you had to send the British troops in, and we were there for, what, 30-odd years, you know? Mike, it's an interesting point, isn't it, that the British troops first went in to protect the Catholics? Uh, absolutely, that, that was, uh, that's, so we said, but I have, uh, since I've joined Veterans for Peace, I've been back and forward since 2014, 15 times to Belfast, Derry, and South Armagh. Uh, and you talk to Republicans that were um, active or alive at the time, they'll tell you that um, the, the guns were very quickly turned on them. Mm. And I believe them. Uh, thus, Protestants and Catholics living next door to each other. Either the Protestants had to move out or the Catholics had to move out because houses were getting burned, people were getting burned out. So we ended up creating completely Republican areas and completely Loyalist areas, you know, within the city of Belfast, Derry, South Armagh. So that, that's a big... Uh, there'd be no Protestants in a Republican area and there'd be no Catholics in a Loyalist area, not a chance. And we, we always patrolled the Republican areas and harassed them, you know... I, I'm 21 years old. A guy going to his work, a point an SLR at his face, get your hands against the wall, kick his leg, kick his ankles, search and frisk him. Right on your way, you take bastard. What you know? The, the, these people, generation, maybe two or three generations, experienced that. What, what would you call a police state, military rule? You know? How how can you call that a democracy? Why didn't they sit down? What, what, what could they find they could talk about in the, the, the mid-90s they could talk about in the early 60s to resolve this situation of unfairness? Why did it take 30 years of bloodshed and killing to get to that point where we got the, the Good Friday Agreement? Why did it take 30 years? Spike, was it, um, was it just Belfast? Was it your one tour of the project? Yeah, yeah. I joined in between a two-year residential tour, uh, early 81. So the, the guys had been there for over a year by the time I joined battalion from the Gabs Depot. So it would be about January, March time, and I was there till December. So about 10 months all told. God, that's um, a... And what year? 1981. Okay, well, we, so and, we and what, what was the level of violence like in 81? Well, um, obviously, when the hunger, it was just normal patrols and uh, just um, making yourself a hard target, as you know, the the the, the, uh, the drill. You make yourself a hard target. You patrol all these areas, like the markets are doing, New Lodge. We knew all the players, all the active members of the IRA or the INLA, and um, so we, we had photographs of them, dates of birth, addresses, and all that. And basically, we were just. Um, Boots on the ground, information gatherers, and we had OPs all over uh, Belfast. You know the Sangers, uh, where we just watched what everybody was doing. You know, um, basically, uh, Big Brother's watching you. You know, a, a, a dictatorship, and um, so basically patrolling vehicle patrol, foot patrol at night during the day. We get cammed up at night and all the rest of it, and. Just 
to see what everybody was doing and filter that all that information would get filtered back to HQ and intelligence so they could build up a picture of what the active members were doing, what they were wearing, who they were talking to, where they were going, what time and all the rest of it. Then, of course, when the hunger strike kicked off and Bobby Sands died, the whole thing went a bit mental. Um, the riots every night, uh, petrol bombs, we could deal with petrol bombs, they're not a problem, we just dodge them, it's not a big deal. Blast bombs were our ne nemesis, you know, the little pipe bombs, crude, very crude, but very, very effective. So a couple of our lads get taken out by them. We had no fatalities. We were very, very fortunate. We had one suicide and um, yeah, a lot of serious injuries. You know, guy lost a lung and an arm and all that when the, the shrapnel uh, went into his arm and his chest. But most of the shrapnel wounds were lower legs or abdomen where the, the black ball would blow and catch guys in the groin and all the rest of it. So, yeah, with a lot of uh, bloody awful things, really cut people to shreds and hear, to hear a man screaming is uh, <laughs> it stays with you. And then the next day you're patrolling the same streets again and you're getting young kids coming up to you saying, I heard your mate screamed like a fucking baby. You know, and having to hold that rage, you know, when you really want to smash your rifle butt into their face, but you can't do that. You know, so yeah, there was a lot, a lot of tension, a lot of us against them, which basically it was. It became very personal to me. I fucking hated them so bad, you know. But um, when you get out and you start to 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 uh, educate yourself and read up in history and British imperialism and all the rest of it, then you begin to understand. Had I been in their position, I would have very much taken the same course of action. Yeah, it's um, it, it it's hard to sum up the level of hatred. I can give a, an anecdote from when we just arrived in Belfast. The unit that we took over from, I was just chatting to one of the guys one day and he was telling me they had a guy blown up, so he's lying dead in the street. And they, do you remember the thing with the dogs? Do you remember the 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 not not everybody over there? Which we should just point out, you know, even the, the individuals we're talking about that are out to cause. These days, I find it impossible, Spike, to say what I want to say because I don't know which words to use because they're not they no longer have, the words no longer have the right frame of reference, you know. But what I'm saying is, is the the people that made it quite clear they fucking hated you would set mm -hmm. their dogs on you. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know? yeah I've seen guys cocking weapons ready to shoot a dog. Yeah, well, it, this is what this guy was telling me. They, their, their colleague was lying dead um, in the street and the, the I don't say Republican, but that, you know, this is not all Republicans even, is it? You know, but this, this person set their dog onto the guy, you know, and the, the dog was eating the picking at the guy's flesh where his leg had been ripped off, you know, and one of the, and, and this guy is just telling me, he said, so yeah, that dog got it. Meaning that they just shot the guys just shot the dog. And as, as one would. Yeah. And it, and it just brought it home to you that, just the 
just the fucking viciousness of it all, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's when I mean, you're brought up in that environment and you you're a kid, you've got armed soldiers walking past your house and uh you see them as the oppressor. You, you, you know, they're part of the imperialism. Shooting the cat away. And, um, yeah, so you, you and your uniform, your uniform is the enemy, the enemy of the Irish people. And that's how they saw you. And they, 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 I, I've spoken to former members of the IRA now several, several times. We even went to a meeting with people from the Ardoin. We were supposed to have the meeting in the Ardoin, but there was hundreds of people wanted to... Um, attend this meeting and the guy that was organising it, uh, Shana Walsh, said, no, this is this could turn out nasty because there's only three ex-soldiers. So we, we ended up doing it at the North Howard Street Mill, remember North Howard Street Mill? It's now a museum. I forget its proper name. And that's where I was stationed. So when I went back to Belfast for the first time, I actually got to visit this place. Gurwood Park's all but gone now. Um, to visit North Howard Street Mill, and I remember where we used to diesel up and uh, make safe when we were. It's a, it's a museum. Anyway, they, they were talking, and um, obviously an active member said he was encouraged to take out soldiers before the RUC and stuff like that. You see, I used to categorise you as all the same. Whoever got in my sights got shot. So, um, in, in their eyes, they were fighting a guerrilla warfare against British imperialism and British oppression. So um, you get that, that that hatred is galvanised from a very, very early age, as it is with the loyalist community as well. You know, it's a learned behaviour. Pretty much the same as Israel and Palestine. That's a much more extreme situation. You know, so if you're brought up, as a, I mean, kids as young as four or five would be throwing stones at us. By the time they got to eight or seven, they were pretty accurate, these little fingers, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sitting in the back of a land on a stone watching the head, you know, <laughs> from some little kid 20 metres away, you know. And they said, how, how do you deal with that? How, how do you cope with that? Yeah, British bastard, you. You know, coming from a pram. <laughs> well, you know, and the kid's been encouraged to do so by the parents who'd be standing at the, the house doorway, you know. Yeah. Uh, how did your man kill himself? What what was all that about? That was before I got there. He used to, drew a gun out of the, the armory and put a bullet and just blew his brains out. He had a lot of personal issues. I didn't even know the guy's name. You know. Another time one of our boys got shot by his own guy. This dickhead. He used to uh, cock the 9mm, but he'd release the magazine and let it fall down a little bit. So when he cocked it, there would no round going up in the chamber. And for a laugh, he'd put his head and go click. And people, what are you doing? And this time he cocked the weapon. But obviously, I hadn't let the, the magazine drop far enough. Took a round into the chamber and went, oi, and shot his mate. <laughs> you know, and, and the sanger. It's... Um... I got I get woke up and said, you're going to have to do such and such as um, stag. I goes, why would smart with him? He says, you've just been shot with that twat, you know. <laughs> so I don't know why people, people did that. I don't know why people did that. It's not even a trick because it didn't used to work because it happened in our, in one of our units, someone did that and they shot shot their mate through a main artery. Uh, you kill him? No, one of the other lads. Um, 
got his knee and put it into the exit wound. Yeah, yeah. To, to, and just knelt on his guide yeah. to, to stop uh, him bleeding to death. And uh, yeah, well, most bet he didn't use his old usual stunt and do it to himself. You know, the guy was a waste of rations, to be honest. Mm. You know, but combat. The guy was named the show was named as combat. He 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 recovered fully, and I met him again in Cyprus. The second battalion were based in Cyprus. We were on our way to um, Oman for desert training in this 1985. Before I got out, and I, I saw the guy and he was fine. You know, just a, a bullet hole in his gut. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened to the guy that done the shooting. I think he done Colchester and was off. That was having done dusted. How was it? How was resettlement for you then? Would you mean getting out of the army or, or leaving Ireland? Well, you can tell me about either. Well, we, there was no stand down as it were. I mean, we were like I said, we went to Hong Kong. We're still wired, really wired up because we experienced ten months of uh, rioting and ten hunger strikers dying, and and uh, there was no, none, no, nobody said, you know, forget about all that. <laughs> you know, it doesn't concern you anymore. So we were just wired to the moon, very aggressive and. Quite a lot of the people in Hong Kong and the expats didn't like us, you know, because we'd go into the bars and tear the bars up and just get drunk. And uh, But leaving the military is actually scarier than joining. You know, I'd, done, I'd signed on for three and I'd done two years open engagement. And getting out, the initial honeymoon period of being out the military is like, yeah, I'm free. But then you think, what am I going to do? Well, where's the work? And I'd go to the job centre, I'd look at all these factors. I've had about 50 jobs since 1985. You know, I'd last maybe a day, maybe two days, maybe even half a day. And I said, oh, and people barking orders at me. I'd be like, fuck you, who do you think you're talking? The right attitude, you know. Uh, arrogance based on nothing other than the fact that I, I, I was in the military. You will show me respect. And a lot of soldiers have that. And then comes the isolation the loneliness, because you've nobody to talk to. And you, you, you fall into this deep, deep depression. You go in and out of depression and you drink a lot and I smoked a lot of dough. And um, Class A drugs come into it again. And, you, and I'd, I'd, I would end up fighting. Somebody looked at me the wrong way. I'd go, what the fuck are you looking at? Oh, I'd be straight in their face. And I ended up within, between 1985 and 1990, I had a record as long as my arm, mostly for violence. And I had a, 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 a sentence, uh, uh, 18 months prison sentence. But thankfully, straight after he said, I sentenced you to 18 months in prison, suspended for two years. Jesus, I could have kissed the guy, I just swear to God. I thought I was going to prison, and it was a brutal act that I had committed on this individual. Me and another former squaddy had uh, set about this guy. Mm. And uh, like I said, I've very nearly done time for it. So, yeah, there's a whole catalogue of things. I ended up getting married and I had kids, I adopted Kerry. And so that kind of kept me on the straight and narrow for a while. But underneath, I was a mess. You know, on the surface, I seemed okay. What? But inside, I was just a shambles. Why, a did, what, why did you leave, mate? Oh, I knew it was time to get out. You just knowing your gut instinct. Plus, I was a, a, an Akai, an assistant physical training instructor and I was, I was taking I was doing a code my knee was already playing up but 
I really crunched it. I went right down on, and I could hear the the, the, the ligaments cracking. And uh, I wasn't looked after properly. You know, this oh, you've twisted your knee. I'd ripped the cruciate ligaments. You know, so I've never been the same since. I've never had the full strength of that uh, right knee since. Um, so I, I and I was rebelling big time. I did a couple of scrap. I'd been promoted to Lance Corporal. I got bust for being drunk and kicking a puggy machine. You know, because of uh, a cigarette machine. Sorry, not a puggy machine. Because wouldn't give me my cigarettes. But I kicked the thing and smashed it. So I got done for criminal damage and theft. I just took the fags that I paid for. <laughs> and so I got busted. And uh, I was beginning to really develop a real stroppy attitude, you know. And uh, I witnessed uh, NCOs bullying guardsmen and I would stick up for them. I'd say, come fight me, you bastard, you know what I mean? And uh, so, yeah, I was. Um, I knew it was time to go before they got me and I ended up in Colchester or something like that, you know, because I really had fallen out of love with everything military, you know, and they were going to send us back, do another tour of Ireland, I said, screw that. I mean, so you've left Spite and basically you, your life is just spiralling out of control? Basically, yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, and through my 30s, I, hung, I managed to hang on to a, a, some sort of level of sanity. And I had my young son, Daniel, come stay with me Monday to Friday. And I would work on the cabs at the weekend. He'd go and stay with his mum because he needed a lot of input. And uh, so we'd go swimming together, play football together, cycle. So I had that to focus on on a daily basis with this wee man. Uh, you don't really know what love is to you have your own kids, you know. And um, so that kept me kind of balanced. But by the time I, uh, I reached 40, the, the, the wheels completely fell off. I started banging ecstasy and cocaine and going on three, four day binges. Daniel stayed at his mum most of the time. I just wasn't fit mentally to, to look after them. I had, basically I had a complete meltdown. And that lasted for about seven years. It was uh, 46, 47, I began to come out of it. But I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I, I didn't understand why I kept getting this feeling that I was falling all the time into this black, black abyss that, that, that you feel. And it, it wasn't until I joined uh, Veterans for Peace, which uh, I, was, I was on Facebook, and this thing popped up. Former SES guy talk, talks to Oxford University why it's not good to fight for Queen and Country, and it was Ben Griffin. I said, I watched this and I'm applauding everything this guy's seen. And I, I went on the uh, Veterans for Peace site and I phoned him up. I said, I want to join Veterans for Peace. And I had a gig in London uh, a couple of weeks after that phone call because I'd started doing being a performance poet. You know, I was, <laughs> I'm kind of chopping and changing, going from one bit to the next. But um, so I, I joined Veterans for Peace. But the reason I was a, a, a started doing poetry and writing poetry, I had to go into anger management in the late 80s and they advised that I write my feelings down instead of acting on them, write them down. They started to take a poetic form and basically the written word, the spoken word poetry was my saving grace. You know, it, it gave me something to focus on and do. And joining Veterans for Peace opened a million doors for me. So within that first I met Ben down in London because he came to see the gig and we chatted outside this pub for about nearly an hour 
And uh, so that was me. I was uh, now a member of Veterans for Peace. And, uh, I want to, uh, Spike, I want to ask you two things. First of all, did you have a moment? In, in, so you're spiralling downwards, the, the drugs and stuff. Your mental health is spiralling. The drugs obviously aren't helping. You're carrying all this trauma, not just from your, your service experience, but from your childhood. At which point did you say, hang on, I, I've got to start being kind to myself? Was there a moment like that? No, I didn't have a, a, eureka, a eureka moment. I didn't have an epiphany. It was a gradual awakening of looking in the mirror and just being disgusted at who, who was looking back at me. And uh, I remember one time I was going to the pub, it was a, a Monday afternoon and I had a bag of Coke and I took two massive lines of Coke. This is me in the house before I went to um, the pub. And I was walking towards the pub and I could, every time I swallowed this cocaine, I could taste it at the back of my throat. I started to wreck. I thought, I can't go to the pub, I'm going to vomit here. I tried cocaine a couple of times after that, and it just, my body was just rejecting it, and I was just start to vomit. And I'm thinking, my body's taking over for my ego wouldn't let me. So I could, I had to stop taking coke, and that meant I couldn't drink as much. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> Plus, I had this uh, liver problem. My livers as well uh, was um, I had contracted hepatitis C somewhere along the line. So the alcohol through a liver that was trying to deal with hep C and deal with the alcohol. Physically, I was um, in a very bad way. So uh, I was one, what age was I, 50, uh, 2010. Uh, I, I actually managed to keep an appointment with this doctor who was going to try and help me with the hepatitis C that I'd contracted. And um, I'd, I'd missed so many appointments because the, the way I live my life. And I agreed to go on this interferon treatment. And that was brutal. It's like chemotherapy. I don't know if you've heard of interferon. Mm. Have you? And uh, I was on it 48 weeks. I was on this show. You have to inject yourself once a week and take these tablets that have a really adverse effect on your body. So, isn't it amazing how life works out? If I hadn't had hepatitis C, it's gone now. The, the interferon worked. I'd have probably carried on drinking myself stupid and to death so maybe that uh, the way life works if uh, the hep c basically saved me i still drink but but nowhere near as much because my body doesn't let me i've got two or three cans and that's about my whack if i take it beyond i'm dying the next day we'll come on and talk about um ben ben griffin but before that spike before you heard him speak how had you got to that reckoning point where when you look back at the 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 british forces and the role that that you'd played well um i used to um listen to george galloway on talk radio which then became talk sport and i would phone up his show and i would uh, recite a poem you know they were very rough and quite these are quite early poems and he, he called me his poet laureate now Whatever I think about George Galloway now is irrelevant. But what I will say about the guy is he's got an enormous political brain. He knows stuff. And I would listen to him. He would talk about the situation in Ireland. And then I'd start picking up books and reading Irish history and British military involvement across the world. You know, we used to, we were brought up as kids that the, the British Empire was a fantastic thing. 
It's absolutely wonderful, you know, talk the world democracy and built bridges. Bullshit. We robbed the places. You know, we invaded, we robbed, we colonised, we murdered, raped, pillaged. We bet a, a, a better flag for the British establishment would be a skull and crossbones and not the butcher's apron that they fly now. We were speaking to guys who were uh, in Malaysia and they were talking about the atrocities committed by the Scots Guards in, in Malaysia. Um, this guy was at the Coldstream Guards and he come across a village where everybody had been slaughtered. And uh, they, they put the blame on that slaughter on these insurgents, these Malayan freedom fighters or whatever they were. And it turns out it was actually the Scottish Guards that had done it. You know? so, so across the board, and the atrocities in Ireland and uh, Malaysia, Kenya, my goodness, South, uh, South Africa, the, the first concentration camps, all British, what they did to the Aborigines in uh, Australia, uh, the Europeans done to the Americas, Top and bottom and middle. Uh, it's just uh, it's just a catalogue, a history of uh, enormous bloodshed and nothing to be proud of. Uh, yeah, I get these right wing nutters too. Ah, but every country's done this, that, and the other. That doesn't matter. But don't don't tell me to be proud of it. Mm. Oh, this patriotism is just absolute nonsense. You know, I, I consider myself a socialist. Therefore, I care about people, working people. I don't care if they speak German, Argentinian, or have got an Irish accent. You know, I'm, I'm all for Scottish independence, but I'll always have more in common with an English socialist than ever will with a Scottish Tory. You know, so my, my views are of, of a political stance now. You of know, one of this not, I, I don't know how it's been historically, but in this modern era, I, it's... You know, when one country invades another on, on whatever dubious, you know, phony reasons. Mm -hmm. Weapons I, of mass destruction. Yeah, and all, the, all this sort of thing. I don't see it as those countries have any grudge between each other. I, I, I see it as these sociopathic, you know, rich bloodlines and, and uh -huh. banking, banking families who who aren't even english or american or or israeli they're an, uh, zionists you know well, cabal. I, Call I, them what you want. I, I don't know who they are you know i'm not just trying to be um i'm not just trying to be diplomatic i genuinely my well, we never see them my yeah my understanding is these people are like from nowhere and, and very often people go, oh, you mean the Jews? And I'm like, no, I don't mean the Jews because I've been in Israel twice. I've met wonderful people. I've met some of the kindest people I've ever met on the planet traveling, you know, hitchhike, picked up hitchhikers, you know, it, it, um, it, well, actually, funny enough, picked up Israeli hitchhiker in West, in West Bank, you know, and he's a really, really, really good guy. And my my best friend so my brother is 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 jewish and he's like the nicest guy you're ever going to meet so i i think that that is you that thing is used as a scapegoat that so you can't criticize these people that are really controlling that, the show the, you know you they, they, they chuck out this anti-semitic thing and it it's i think it's it's like the guy when when the bullfighter and he holds the cape out and the bull attacks the cape, 
but the guy's okay. I think these guys are playing the whole world off against each other, and they're, and they're playing a nationality card and the patriotism thing and the, you know, and, and all, all these yeah. other... We know from our own experience how easily it is to program the human brain. We've done our military training. <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> when I joined the army, I had three sisters and a brother. And uh, I was just a normal guy. And I remember going home to Glasgow, my fifth week leave, we were allowed uh, a, a weekend off after five weeks of intensive training. And the difference in me was shocking. I was... I would walk to the kettle to put the kettle on. I'd march up to it and come to attention, you know, and put the kettle on. And I was walking about the house marching and coming to attention and turning right, turning left. And my, my sisters, my brother, my mum were like, what the hell's happened to this guy? My dad got it. He's ex-Navy, you know. He, he understood what was happening. And that was just after five weeks, you know. Imagine what it's like after five years or these guys that do 25. Oh, bless you. Yeah. Uh, and the longer you're in within the, the, that military, the harder it is for you to readjust when you come out. And, uh, oh, God, I, I've never been to a reunion. Uh, what's the point? I, I don't want to wear that brigade tie and blazer. And I've been my medal a long time ago. It's a heap of rubbish. You know, you got a shiny penny and a pat in the head for risking your life to keep rich fuckers rich, you know? Mm -hmm. just, you know, we can talk about uh, remembering Sundays, I, I, I used to go to the Cenotaph with the Veterans for Peace and we'd walk down and, you know, banks of three. We'd walk down, we wouldn't march, obviously, but we're always last on because they didn't want, they didn't want the public to see ex-soldiers laying a wreath of white poppies at the Cenotaph. They thought it was disrespectful to the dead. It's not very respectful. So after all the dignitaries and the royalties, all these people that make money from war, the hypocrisy stinks, you know, and all these sheep gathered round with their poppies on, if, you know, thinking that they're remembering people that fought for their freedom and democracy basically is a lie because where is that freedom and democracy now? And people say, if it wasn't for Churchill, you'd all be speaking German. So the Germans lost the war. Why aren't they all speaking English? Do you know what I mean? You know, nothing would have changed that much. War after war after war after war since the Napoleonic Wars or the American War of Independence, American Civil War, all arranged and coerced by the very people you just talked about, the ones we never see. And they put in place to do their to do their spade work for them. And they managed to recruit from the masses under the illusion of fighting for Queen and Country. You you, you don't fight for your country, you fight for the establishment of that country. You fight for the rich. All the military are of accessories to the rich man's plunder. Mm. And there's a lot of people watching this that will be up in arms, ex-soldiers especially, or super-duper patriots or the right wing, calling me a traitor. So I'm not a traitor to my, my, my kind. I'm not a traitor, traitor to humanity or, or uh, you know, equality. You know, I'm, I'm coming from being a, a place of humanity here, not a military robot. And that, that's basically yeah, so what my understanding of, of say, the Second World War is it's probably different to the main. Well, no, I, I don't think what we used to call the mainstream is the mainstream anymore. I just think more and more people see, can we just say bullshit? They see through the bullshit. 
Absolutely. Everybody I meet now, it used to be that, you know, if you questioned anything, you were like a pariah. Yeah. You know, you were unpatriot. And, and now it's like, I think people realize if you're a true patriot, if you genuinely love your people and your family and your children, then you question. You have to question who uh-huh. these idiots are that keep sending us to these um, wars which they benefit from, right? Absolutely. And Imagine how much courage it took for uh, conscientious objectors in the First World War who were vilified, mm. called cowards and uh, ostracized by their own families and communities sent away further. So, so even then it was happening, you know. Uh, but with with um, social media now, the messages, we can get the message out to a lot more people. But we need to keep hitting it because they're going to censor social media as well. We're going to have to find other outlets because they will censor the truth every way they can. They're doing it now with this COVID situation. You know, they're censoring people and not allowing the truth to be told. You've got to listen to the mainstream narrative, the official narrative. Yeah, it, ta- it, it, when you start, the more you learn, the more it just turns history on its head. But Absolutely. Here's, here's a clever thing. They even use the, the freedom stuff to keep you a slave. And by, by that, what I mean is people use expressions like, oh, history's written by the winners. The people that's, that are saying this are the ones that don't believe history is written by the winners. Do, do, do you get me? Like, I, I try and explain. I know, I feel in my heart that history is not an accurate representation of what oh, no, no, in history, no. right? I think it is genuinely written by the people that benefit not just in economic terms, but in terms of power, keeping the world in this like oppressed state, right? I reckon they're the people that write the history. Okay. Mm-hmm. So who's history you going to believe? The white man's, the black man's, the Irish history, the Red Indian history, Aboriginal history. Yeah. You've you know? only got to look at the history. I always say the events in New York. You know, I don't like to say the the numbers because. That just gets you flagged up, um, gets your video flagged up by YouTube, right? But everyone knows what I'm on about when I talk about the events in New York. Well, look what the winners would want you to believe, right? You know, this completely bizarre scenario that that you couldn't make it happen even if you tried, as opposed to a very realistic scenario that I'm sure you and I more familiar with mm-hmm. um you know one that keeps these sociopaths even richer and sells their bombs their bullets and their guns and uh, creates a power play in a world that means that they keep their their central you know their central banking system and and all, all, all this kind of thing right but when you my point is when you say to people do you know history is written by the winners they oh yeah 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 and then they just come out with some shit that shows like, no, you don't. You don't understand. They regurgitate the shite that they've been programmed with. This is, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like talking to a brick wall sometimes, you know. Don't you get what I'm saying? You know, I mean, 
take Churchill, for instance. He's lauded as the greatest Briton that ever lived. The man was a psychopath. Mm. He, he, he sent soldiers to shoot striking miners in Wales. He put a battleship in the Mersey to calm any unrest among the working classes who were just wanting a better deal. And he put tanks in the streets of Glasgow. And he was all happy to use uh, chemical weapons against the Kurds. And uh, he stabbed what, four million Bengalis to death under his orders, under his command. And yet he's lorded as somebody to look up to. Mm. I don't get that. You know, <laughs> the same as the white helmets in Syria. When, when they posted that where people were supposed to be getting chemically attacked and they're walking about like zombies. And we could see that was act, very poor acting. Because anybody that had been hit by a chemical weapon would be screaming. Their skin would be melting off them. Oh, God. You ever listen to Eva Bartlett, the uh, correspondent in Syria? She's a Canadian uh, journalist. Yeah. And she exposes the lies time after time. Time after time. Mm. If, uh, I'll send you some links to Eva. She's, um, she's a fantastic journalist. And she's out there exposing the lies and telling the truth, especially what's happening in Syria. Mm. You know, I'm, my, my, my vision is just very simple, Spike. Is it written in history? Yes. Well, then that's a lie. Sorry, it, it, it's just a complete lie. Did you see it on the news? Yes. Sorry, that's, that, that's a complete lie as well. It's just that simple, not because I'm some like mental ed, but because everything I've ever looked at in history that I was taught growing up has just it's turned out to be a complete lie. Um, and it's not just that, but I'm always, you know, I'm a great believer. You get one life. Do you want to go through it blind? You know, mm -hmm. do you want to go through your one life on this beautiful planet, like blinded and just believing what people like Tony Blair and George Bush want you to believe? I, oh, no. I can't get my head around why. I, I just, I don't, I, I'm not a smart person, but I don't understand why these people that are clearly evil, greedy, conscienceless cowards, yeah. right? why you want them to teach your children? I don't get it, Spike. I don't, because, I, I don't get they're, it. Like you said, they're completely blind. You're blinded by people. I, I, I call people patriots like blinded by flag and deafened by anthem. You know, I even remember a discussion with a woman once who was a unionist from Belfast. Her husband used to print my books for me. And I was I was dissing the, the, the royal family. And she said, oh, where would we be without the Queen? That level of brainwashing, that's not going to go away in her lifetime. She's completely conditioned. The same with any fundamentalist, Christian, Muslim, whatever. whatever they, they believe the extreme. If I said to a fundamentalist Christian, like Jesus' mum was no virgin, they would go berserk. The cognitive dissonance would kick in. What they've been brought up to believe is gospel truth, and you shatter that illusion, you're going to get an angry response, and that's what you're getting from people, because they don't want to believe they've been duped or lied to. They want to believe what they, they think represents them, that somehow think naturally yeah, defines them. I think what it is, right, and I'll be the first to put my hand up and say, I was probably, well, I was like this, right? Is I think people 
have this framework that's constructed around them from from birth right and when they get older it becomes like their life narrative it's who they are it's their identity it's how they believe they make sense of the world right oh. and when if you p- point out that a certain aspect of their framework it it it's incorrect right i think they get a bit scared oh the rage the the, the, the fear kicks and the, the you know how how dare you it's weird mate you know it's weird that programming. Yeah, um, I, can, I think you can only go with what uh, well Gandhi said: "Be the changes you want to see in the world." You know, or basically, we can only find our own truth and live by that truth. And if people want to listen to you, they'll listen. But some people just ain't ready for the truth. They just, they, 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 like you said, they've been so so intensely brainwashed and programmed throughout their entire lives. For you to say, like, like me to say, a Christian that Mary wasn't a virgin. I mean, we just go, go mental, you know. I just, you, you could um, have a shiny stone somewhere, you know, and uh, people say that's sacred, and you've got to treat generation after generation are going to treat that shiny stone as sacred. And if anybody defaced it or damaged it, oh, what have you done to the stone? You know, like the life of Brian. Monty Python film and John Cleese holds up the sandal it's a sign it's a sign you know <laughs> we're all desperately looking for a leader and uh, very clever what I try to explain to people about what's happening in the world and has been well since since time began have you ever been in an abusive oppressive relationship and most especially women will say yes they've had that jealous control freak in their life that dictates their money, who they talk to, who they go out with, what they wear, blah, blah, blah. I will try and imagine that on a global basis. And you've got a very small group of people controlling with fear the entire human race. That's how it works. Divide and conquer as well. Make us afraid of each other. Black ones, white ones, Asian ones, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Christian, gay, straight, female, male. You know? Tall, short, ginger, <laughs> disabled. They call it order out of chaos, don't they? Mm-hmm. They, they make all of the, you know, the person in the street attack each other while they're up there just laughing at the whole. They think it Chicken. makes they 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 think it well. It, I mean, it makes them financially better off, but they think they get power from this. They don't understand. It's what David Icke says: stop giving them the power. But how do we, when so many are tuned into the, the matrix, you know, and uh, not willing to open their brains or open their eyes or open their hearts to to their own potential? They, they just plod along like robots, obeying, 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 when there's so much more we can offer each other and the planet. I think maybe this dark period we experience might lead us to enlightenment eventually, but not in our lifetime. George Carlin. I, I saw this in a George Carlin quote. I don't actually know if he said it, but it was talking about... It, it, he said, if you, if you imagine the average person's pretty stupid, <laughs> he said, 
just think that 50% more of the planet are more stupid than that. <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds the kind of thing George Carlin would say. Mm. And, uh, and Bill Hicks as well, he, he was amazing. Uh, so, so many prophets have been and gone and sometimes have to disguise themselves as comedians to get the message across. And Conley's done it as well. Uh, but I think the, the George Carling thing, he, he actually just said, you know what, I'm just going to become uh, an observer for the freak show. I'm just going to take a ringside seat. If you live in America, you get a ringside seat to the freak show. And it is an absolute freak show where you listen to these people, these psychopaths that get voted in every term. And you find that when Barack Obama got in, I thought, great, brilliant, you've got a black president, maybe we'll see some changes in the world. Nothing changed. He's just another puppet, you know. Mm. And I, I, maybe the same thing would have happened if Corbyn had got in. He'd have just uh, either he get taken out if he like JFK, or he would have succumbed to to the, the pressure of obeying the rules to keep the rich rich. Oh, of course he would. Well, again, Spike, and I'm only saying this because I hope it helps people listening that want the truth in life. Is it's really simple. Are they a politician? Yes. Well, then they're a puppet. That is that is the role of a politician. It isn't to be a hero or a egalitarian or to, to do good for the... No, politicians serve the ruling elite. That is all they do. That That is their... It's like grabbing hold of a football player and say, why didn't you serve me a joint of meat in the butchers last week? And he'd go, well, because I'm a football player. Well, I'm gonna. I'm not happy about that. It's you. You wouldn't do that. You. You'd be. He'd look at you and go, "Mate, you're completely deluded." I'll play football. That's what I do. These politicians, what they do is they make power for the sociopath. You call them psychopaths. I call them sociopath because they don't know. They don't understand love. They've never known love, so they don't no. understand it. Right. So, for me. It just makes things so simple. You can see then how the whole world is. When you stop having false expectations on, you know, in, in these different areas of life, then it just makes things really, really simple. Is he a politician? Great. Then he hates you. He hates your, you know. You know or, 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 or they represent, they represent people that hate you and hate your family. Did you see it on the news? Yes. Well, then it's not true. Basically, yeah, that's the no. bottom line. You follow the official narrative, you're just going to uh, burden yourself with bullshit, basically. Mm. And uh, that, that's, that's uh, evident, not just in uh, the last few months, but throughout our lifetimes and uh, our parents' lifetimes. It's, it's been going on for thousands of years. Divide and rule, divide and rule. And then you, get, you surround yourself with sycophants that will serve to protect you i.e. the military or the police, you know. And um, it's, it's, it's like a carousel. It just goes round and round and round and round. Each generation just becomes uh, cannon fodder for the rich. Do you think, though, nobody said human beings were spo are supposed to get it right, you know? I mean... We talk about saving humanity and saving the planet. Maybe we're just not supposed to. Maybe we're just so crap that the, the whole thing's going to hell in a handcart. And I just think maybe there's not supposed to be a magic answer to it. Maybe 
like George Carlin said, he's going to sit back and watch the world burn. He's going to laugh his ass off. Well, basically, that's... Maybe, you know, I, I do look like you look at the world. Maybe we are an experiment to see how we evolve in this very, very short lifetime. I think it's a book of James saying that a man's life is like the morning mist vanishes come noon. And, and that's absolutely right. I can't believe I'm 60 years old, you know. Where the hell did you... You know, how... And I think we're here to evolve in this lifetime. And I, I want to at least go to my death enlightened and aware, not consumed with bigotry and hatred and anger. Now, you know, I want to know that I've, I've done my best. I've, I've, I've evolved as a, a human being. You know, I, I don't know if you believe in the Buddhist thing and reincarnation. I don't particularly get it myself. I don't know what happens when we die. Do we just, are we just dead? I don't know. Or do we go on do we just go on to become a, a, a higher intelligence or something? You know, I, I don't. It's, it's hard to even talk about the human race. How would you explain it to a, an alien? You know, if this super intelligent being arrived and said, "Okay, Spike, tell me about the human race," I'd be like, <laughs> "Where do I start? Yeah. You know, how do I finish it, and what conclusions are you going I to can't. draw from They're insane. We are I'll explain it to myself, Spike. How am I supposed to explain it to someone else? <laughs> but do you know what? The, be the beauty of it is I don't want to try and explain it. I, I just couldn't care. People talk about reincarnation and God and all that. Like, why? I mean, well, I mean, you well, people can do whatever the hell they want, right? So long well, as, that's as, as long as you're not upset in my life, do, 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 do what you want, right? Personally, though, I'd... Like it's so beautiful, this planet. I'm looking out my window now. It's it's amazing out there, right? And that's all I care about. It's an amazing universe. It's an amazing planet. I'm, I don't need. You're so small, but the tiny, the tiny little third rock from the sun. Yeah, I don't want to spend waste a second of my time wondering if we're controlled by a guy who sits on a cloud or if if I'm <laughs> gonna, if I'm going to be a pig in the next life. It's like if if you can prove it, great. Bring me some proof. If you can't, I'm not in. I'm just not interested. You know. Yeah, and if if heaven's going to be full of sanctimonious, pedantic assholes, I don't want to go there. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I, I love the philo philo philosophical side of who are we? What is are we a, a computer simulation? You know, I, I I like all that. But the only facts I've got in my lap are I made of carbon molecules. Uh, I'm life experiencing life. So, you know, if you had a rock and a rock, you wouldn't go give them names and identities and, you know, yeah, take, we, this, we take this one out for lunch. You'd go, that's just carbon molecules and that's just carbon molecules. So, and with humans, we've, we've got this delusion that we're somehow... Like, Super duper. Yeah, special. <laughs> and it, it, that, we're not special, no, no. Um, but, you know... Um, I think all I can do as a human being in the, the, the autumn years of my life, I've just entered autumn, you know, how long, 10, 15, 20 years, I don't know. Nobody's promised tomorrow, it could all come to a halt tomorrow. But um, I appreciate what I've learned in this lifetime. You know, I've got an awareness, I'm open, and I, I can see the absurdity of humanity and the, the, the way we categorise ourselves and pigeonhole ourselves. That's our tradition, that we carry on doing that. What is tradition? 
And what was traditional before that became a tradition, you know? It's, it's all nonsense. It's, we are, I don't know, maybe we should, we should go back to living in smaller communities like devolution and uh, call it anarchy if you want, but self-governing communities where love and awareness That's, that's you know? a great, devolution is a great example of the Orwellian way of turning a good, something that's supposed to be good into something that just maintains the oppressive agenda of these idiots, right? Because devolution to me and you is like, let's step back a bit and let's get more in touch with the nature and let's stop destroying the planet and, and, and let's get our human relationships back up. But devolution's been co-opted by, you know, this power elite to, to, to mean, you know, devolve the politics into... Am I making sense, you know? Devolution in political terms means something completely different to the, the beautiful thing that you're trying to describe. Yeah, utopia. There is such a thing. Maybe like I said earlier, this dark period that we've been through the last several hundred years or a couple of thousand years, which in universal terms is that, you know, uh, will, will, will evolve and become what we're capable of becoming. And that's intelligent, in touch with nature. We, we seem to be the only species on the planet that's out of touch with nature. Everything else is connected to it, knows what their purpose is, knows how to survive, knows what it has to eat. It doesn't, no, there's no greed amongst any other creature on this planet apart from human beings. If I could uh, rid humanity of one thing, it'd be greed, and that would stop it all. And we'd become the species we're capable of becoming. Yeah. So, on, Spike, to, to finish off, there are two things I want to say. Um, the, the first thing is, so what was it like meeting former... I don't know if reformed is the right word, but but for reformed IRA personnel. That that was uh, uh, 2014, and I was at the Veterans for PCGM, which at the time was in March, and it was a guy speaking on the panel, a guy called Lee Lavis, who former British soldier, now living and working in Belfast, and the. Uh, he said, uh, after he'd finished speaking, is anybody any questions? I have my hand shot straight up. He goes, I want to get involved with what you're doing. I want to, I want to help. Or I want to go back to Belfast, but this time as a man of peace, not, not as a soldier. And within a few months, I was back in Belfast for the first time since 1981. And uh, the first pe- people I met, the first person I met, I went to a talk between a guy called Pat McGee. Do you know his name? Yeah, I, I remember that from when I was over there, I'm pretty well, sure. Yeah, you spoke about this on the phone. Pat was the, the guy that planted the Brighton bomb. Ah. He, he was talking to Joe Berry, whose father was killed. Uh, Anthony Berry was killed. He was a, a Tory. And he was killed. And she wanted to find out why this man had taken her father out. And uh, I was encouraged to talk to this guy whose father had been killed by a British soldier 30 years ago. And of course, I'd never had this experience before. And we kind of locked horns a wee bit. And then Lee intervened because he'd been in Belfast a long time. And I ended up sitting talking to Pat. And I thought, what a lovely guy he is. You know, what a wonderful human being, full of humanity. And, uh, and I get he was a soldier. He had orders and he obeyed these orders to take out the Tory party in Britain. 
who were the enemy of his people. I get that. But um, he's, um, by his own words, is conflicted by the past. Well, how could you not be? You know, I, I fortunate enough, I have never taken another human life. I've come very close a couple of times, and thankfully it didn't, it didn't happen. I don't have that guilt to deal with, like Pat does, or maybe his former British soldiers who have killed. And it weighs heavy on you, because how you feel when you're 20 is different to what you feel like when you're 50. You know, as Muhammad Ali said, if a man thinks the same at 20 as he did at 50, he's wasted 30 years of his life. Yeah. I, I, there were twice I got the opportunity to potentially kill someone. And, and this was in obviously in um, in Belfast. Mm. And the irony is when I was in the forces, all I wanted to do was kill someone because I thought that was my job and that would make me like, the, the perfect soldier. If I could kill right. someone, you know, that's what I've been trained to do, right? Jesus Christ, I'm. S if I'd have done that, I've, I don't think I'd be here now, mate, because my conscience is weighed heavy as it, as it is. I know? remember a, a loaded SLR in the man's face in the markets. Um, you know, he, he lunged at me we hot pursuit at his house because somebody had been dead jobbed. And I had a thrust, my, uh, kicked his door in. And he lunged at me with a knife, just missed my face. And within seconds, he had two pointed SLRs in his face. Drop the knife or I'll blow your fucking head off. And I was that close to squeezing the trigger. I looked behind, his brother was standing behind him. Looked further into the room. His parents were watching the telly. Can you imagine? I shot that. I wouldn't be here talking to you now if I had killed that bloke. My life would have been down a completely different path. I don't think I could have lived with that. And the effect it would have had in his family's parents witnessing that, you know. But I'm at the stage of life now, I'm 10 years older than you, Chris. I'm, I'm 60, you're 50. So well, for I'm, another... I'm about 26, but I'll, I'll just look older than... Uh... <laughs> but where I am, I still get flashbacks and I still have dark, dark moods. But I know what to do. I don't react on it now. I just go home, shut the curtains, open a can of beer. Tomorrow's a new day. But uh, at best, I think, Everything that's happened in the past has been stepping stones to this person you see now. And it was all essential for me to get to this point in my life. Whatever I was supposed to learn from birth, I think I've pretty much learned it. I've got a lot of learning to do because the learning's never done. I'm going to have to learn how to get old and not be able to do this. I can hardly do half the things I used to be able to do. You know, but it's all part of the process of life. And, um, you know, I think I've done my best as a human being, to regain my humanity after it had been ripped away from you, from childhood, from the military, from the school, from the bullies. I've managed to rediscover who I am, my, my honest, true self, my, my human self. Basically, that's where we're at. And you've done a good job, mate, you know, and, and, and you're sh really shining a light for other, other people, I feel. Um, well, these people shined a light for me. You know, so yeah, yeah. If that's what I'm here to do, then I'll take, I'll take it, I'll take it all day long. Chris, it's been a hell of a conversation. We've talked for nearly two hours. Um, the, the, the so for, pe for people who, who, who like your message or they re resonate with your message, how how can they get involved? 
Well, join in Veterans for Peace, you know, or just contact me on Facebook. I'll chat to anybody about anything, you know. Um, if, if they're open to change, if they're open to, to say, I, I don't get it, what, what's happened to me? If they're open to want to understand the insidious nature of military training or the school education and uh, just open their minds, then talk to people like myself, to people like you, people like Ben, people like Lee, Kieran, People that have experienced it and that have managed to come to terms with it, and we can now process it and understand what we went through. Yeah. There you go. And one final note: it wouldn't uh, wouldn't be fair on you to finish without asking about your poetry. What? How can people? Do you have any? <laughs> Do you have a YouTube channel or anything? Well, well, I'm developing a YouTube channel as we speak. I'll put more and more stuff out on YouTube. But uh, I've got a Facebook uh, page called Spike the Poet. And they can go on that and uh, leave a message. Or, and, um, I've got five books that are on sale at the minute, only through Amazon, unfortunately. I'm not my favourite company. If you start paying some tax. But I have to find another publisher. And I've only ever really sold my books through Amazon or through Facebook or hand-to-hand -hand local shops. As my publisher said before he retired, if you could put a face of Jordan on your books, it would sell millions. <laughs> yeah, that's how easily people are, they, they, they want the glamour. But, um, if people want to understand how to come to terms with their demons, as you said, so beautifully said, then yeah, you write them down. Read other people's poetry. I'm reading Shelley at the minute. Beautiful poet. Fantastic. Uh, so you can, you can learn and get books that help you develop your understanding of life. Like, uh, I, I read the Tao, the Dao De Jing, you heard of it? The Tao, Chinese philosophy. Yes. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I read uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer's interpretation of the Tao. It's a dog-eared copy now. I've had it for 13 years, and I read it over and over again. 81 chapters of absolute common sense. And there's all that stuff out there to help you progress as a human being and stop your clinging to the earth and understand that there's a lot more going on out there than just what's happening, you know, in the world around us. And what's, you what's, your, what's your author name? What are people looking for on Amazon? Spike. Spike Pike. Spike Pike. <laughs> yeah, my name's Michael. <laughs> but I, I get called Spike for the first, the first couple of days I've been in the military. I, I decided to do a number two on my hair, the number one, number two. And it was kind of spiky, and this guy walked in and said, that's spiky head. But that time on, I was called Spike. Uh, since I was 20 years old, I'd been at the guards' depot. I can even remember the guy's name, Carruthers. Graham Carruthers. He, he lost a foot in the Falklands, a poor lad. And it was him that gave me the name Spike. So there you go. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Spike, and, you've uh, been an absolute legend. Thank you so much. Thanks for your contribution. Um, I'll... I'm going to be in touch with you anyway. Um, hopefully, we can do maybe do a bit of filming together and, and that kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. And, and we've uh, got a, pe a pending trip to Derry sometime in the year, which um, hopefully we, you, you can come along. Yeah, I'd, I'd love, absolutely love to. Definitely. Because uh, this will be my 15th trip. The, it was, the 15th trip was cancelled in March, obviously, because. Uh, so, yeah, and, and talking to people you were told you were your enemy and understanding, it's not my enemy, it's my brother, it's my sister. 
We've got um, so much in common. From, you know? from, from my perspective, one of the things I was taught very young, I think it was my dad used to drum at home. And it's really just been, it's really rung true my whole life. He, he said, Chris, communication is everything. You know, Absolutely. Between human beings, communication is everything. So Absolutely. That's, that's my perspective on, 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 on learning. You know, if you don't communicate with people, you get misunderstanding. You get area, black area, you know, gray areas, black areas. And how, how, how can you ever, you know, put together your thoughts if you don't have all the information there, you know, and how yeah. can you find resolutions and find a better future for, for you know, for the, for the next generation or generations to come? Absolutely. Well, Chris. Brilliant. Take care. I'll chat to you soon, buddy. Cheers. I look forward to it. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.